Well, good morning. It is good to be back up here with you guys. I'm so thankful for Pastor Greg last week bringing the word and finishing up chapter 2 of Genesis. And I'm even more excited to be here with you this morning and to start chapter 3. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. Everything was good. Perfect environment, perfect provisions, perfect bodies, perfect health, perfect submission of the animal kingdom, perfect partner, perfect relationship, and perfect harmony with the one who made it all perfect. Everything was was awesome until it wasn't. Genesis 1 and 2, they, they, they beg the question, if what God has created has been created good, then how do you explain what we look at when we see the world all around us? How do you account for that? How do you explain tsunamis and earthquakes and fires and floods and termites and erosion and mass shootings, hate speech, divorce, rape, murder, cheating on tests, bribing school officials to let your kids into college. What about gender dysphoria, child abandonment, child abuse, sex slavery, racism, adultery, political corruption, greed, lying, superiority complexes, depression, suicide, Infanticide, genocide, poverty, homelessness, insecurity, illness, germs, super viruses, plagues, famine, poor self-esteem, fear of failure, fear of crowds, fear of isolation, fear of running out of breath. (laughs) If what God created is very good, then how do you explain the world that we live in? And the answer is found here in Genesis chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Again, it's Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If what God has created has been created good, then how do you explain all this? Well, the good life that has been created, it's become a living death because people have exchanged the truth for a lie. 
Let's take a few moments this morning. We just want to unpack this. We want to look at what happened, and let's actually explore the persuasion that led away from God's goodness, away from truth, and brought about the world that we're experiencing today. It all began with an instigator, a troublemaker, a wrench in the immaculately, immaculately crafted, precision-engineered gear work of the world that had been created. Verse 1 tells us this creature was crafty. Now that word doesn't necessarily imply evil, but certainly there was something very evil going on here, wasn't there? This is the most sinister of creatures. Someone might be thinking, well, hold on, hold on, wait a second. I thought you said, didn't you say that everything that God made was good? Everything was perfect? After he created everything, he said, this is very good. What are you talking about here? Who's this creature? Where did he come from? I mean, if Colossians is true and that everything that has been made was made through him, and not only through him, it was made for him, then how do you explain this crafty beast of the field? How do you explain this? And those are great questions. Genesis 3 doesn't answer those questions. doesn't answer those he just appears. He's just there. And I think mainly that's because this passage isn't about the origin of evil. It's not about that. It's about how things went wrong for humanity. It's about how things went wrong for us. So we're not given the backstory here. Now, that's not to say that the Bible is silent on this topic or that it's not important. The book of Jude and the book of Second Peter, they give us a clue, a peek into what was going on here, into what happened. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it would seem that there was some type of celestial insurrection that happened here. There was some who weren't satisfied with the positions that they were given, and they wanted more. Second Peter 2.4 tells us, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So the first sin, it's pretty clear, was an act of rebellion against God. And it actually predates what we're reading here in Genesis 3. There was something that went amiss before all of this happened. But you know, that actually brings up some other questions. How could this happen? It, it, was God not able to control the creation that, that he had made? I mean, was he not really sovereign over all things? How could perfectly created and holy angelic beings, how could they just up and rebel against their creator? How does this happen? Now, I don't want to send us down rabbit trails this morning. I want us to stick to just our passage and really hear what God wants us to hear from it. But for the time being, let me just say, the Bible both affirms and teaches the sovereignty of God. 
Absolutely. He is in control. He is over all things. Anything that does exist only exists because he has said it could exist. He's permitted it to exist. And if he permits something to exist, well, then that thing has a reason for its existence. And because we know that God is holy and that he's perfectly righteous and all-wise, well, we can trust that his reasoning is good. And it's right. And we'll just have to leave that there for now. If you want to do some further study, I'd recommend maybe uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a book about this big. I think it's about $60, but it is worth it. There's some good stuff in there. This is good stuff to study. We don't have time to get into all of it this morning. But here in Genesis 3, we see there's this, this serpent. We have a serpent who was the serpent? Revelation 12:9 says, "The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world." The serpent is the devil. He's the devil. Now don't ask me if he wears a, a red jumpsuit, has a little, little pointy tail, stomps around. I don't, I don't know. It, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But the Bible does clearly tell us here he took the form of a, state, of a snake. And in other places we're told that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't look bad when you see him. He looks kind of uh, interesting. Oh, that might be a guy I want to hang out with. He seems like he's got some things together. The, uh, 1 Peter 5.8 describes him as a roaring lion. He is powerful. He, he storms around, prowls around, seeking whom he may devour. The name devil, it actually means slanderer. And Satan means the accuser. He's the deceiver in Revelation 12.9, the evil one in Matthew 13.19, the ruler of this world in John, the prince of the air in Ephesians, and the prince of demons in Matthew 12.24. So whatever you, he looks like, Whatever name that you want to give him, he's bad news. Bad news. He's a brilliant strategist. He's chock full of malicious intent, and he is not to be trifled with. How does he work to bring about his foul intentions? Now that is a good question. That is an important question. Because... From what I can tell, from the very beginning, the way that he worked back then, he is still working the exact same way right now. And I want us to see that. I want us to recognize that because we need to be on guard. We need to prepare ourselves and protect ourselves and our families from his schemes. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because he's dangerous. He wants to kill you. He wants to chew you up. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to pull you away from your beautiful, wonderful creator who you need and rely upon. Peter says, resist him. He's not your friend. He's not your buddy. He's not, not this cuddly bunny rabbit that you just want to give a little tickle and snuggle up next to. No! Resist him. Don't mess around with him. He is your enemy. Don't listen to him. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And schemes is exactly what they are, right? They're schemes. They're carefully orchestrated, deviously crafted, meticulously executed plans to seduce you, to lure you, to deceive you, to fool you into thinking that what is bad is actually good. And as you look at it, to, 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 to desire it, to want it, you, you, you'll willingly and joyfully run after it and accept it and embrace it. He schemes. He strategizes. He employs tactics. And we see some of those tactics here in Genesis 3. And for the rest of our time together, I'd like to take just a few moments to explore what those tactics look like. I see four here. Someone else could probably pull out more, um, but I think it's important that we recognize these. He said to the woman, this is verse 1, did God actually say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Tactic number one, create distance. Create distance. That's the first thing we see here, the enemy doing, creating distance between creature and creator. And he does that in such a sly way. It's so sly that we probably wouldn't even notice it if we didn't spend some time here. He very carefully chooses how he's going to refer to God. Rather than refer to God as, as God was known to Adam and Eve, as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, your creator, he omits the title Yahweh. He omits that Lord title there, and he just says, the creator. The creator. That's who we're talking about. Did the creator actually say you see the last thing that he wants to do is to remind people that god is this personal being that loves them that cares for them that they know and enjoy a special relationship with he doesn't want them to think about that at all no this is just the creator this is just the one who got it done the the reason for all that's here he's the distant engineer who happens to be responsible for making all of this And it's interesting, Eve follows his lead. Immediately, she proceeds to refer to God in the exact same way. He's just Elohim. What an effective tactic. What an effective tactic. If if you're able to depersonalize someone and create distance from them, to objectify rather than personalize them, well, you've made it so much easier to separate yourself from any feelings of emotional attachment or sense of obligation, don't you? This isn't someone that I have a relationship with. This is just that, that, that thing, that one. When I worked at an animal hospital in high school, I got to do some great stuff. I got to see some crazy things. And sometimes when I was assisting in surgeries, the scene got pretty grim and pretty disturbing. And one of the ways that I was able to cope with the, the operations that the doctor was performing, and actually, he said, stick your hand there, do this, hold this. One of the ways I was able to cope was 
by depersonalizing the animals there. And instead of thinking of, of them as animals and these, these pets that, that people know and love, I looked at them as machines. They were just, they were just uh, uh, biological machines where the skin was just like sheet metal on a car and, and, and the blood was just like the oil. And I was looking at them just like vehicles. And so if I did that, if I stuck in that frame of mind, well, then we were, we were all fine. The smell was getting to me, but I, I, other than that, I was doing okay. I was depersonalizing it. I was objectifying what the task that needed to be done there. And the same thing happens right now all the time. It happens for human beings. If you can find a way to depersonalize a group of people, well, then you can make it so much easier to take advantage of them, to abuse them, to isolate them, completely disregard them. And it's no secret Women have been objectified and abused for centuries, much to the result of pornography. They've been depersonalized, so they've been abused. They've been taken advantage of. Hitler used anti-Semitic propaganda to objectify and engender a, a hatred toward the Jews, those Jews in Germany. We use the term fetus instead of baby. It's made it so much easier to stomach the murders of unborn human lives all around the world. I got online and looked at some statistics this week. Well over 1.5 billion since 1980. Just this year, 10.5 million. We're in April. This is unbelievable. And you know, I think it's safe to say that the frequency with which our society uses the Lord's name in vain, well, that's stripped from people's minds any semblance of reverence or regard for the personhood of God. God? Is he a real person? No, 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 no. He's just that impersonal force that we make mention of every time we get frustrated. That's God. The objectification that began back in the garden, it continues to this day. And the distance that's been created in people's minds, it's, it's very real. And it's dangerous. It's deadly. Notice what the serpent does next in verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. You know, if we were just skimming through this passage, we could easily miss what's happening here. The serpent actually takes what God had said and he twists it. That's the second tactic I see here. Tactic number two, distort the truth. Distort it. In Genesis 2.16, God clearly said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Here in 3.1, though, the question is asked, did God really say, you can't eat the fruit of any, of any of these garden trees? The distortion may be subtle, but it's absolutely there. The enemy, he subtly twists what was clearly stated and leads us to consider that what was 
a good statement. You can eat of every tree. This is phenomenal. This is incredible. And he takes that and he says, no, 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 no. I think God was doing something different here. He was limiting you. He was restricting you. He makes Eve look at her good creator who has blessed us with every single good thing. He says, I think, uh, I think he's trying to pull one on you. I think he's trying to shortchange you. I think he's trying to take advantage of you. Did he say you can't eat of any of these trees? What is with this God, this creator? He's twisting. He's twisting the truth. He wants her to see as God as one who restricts rather than the one who sets free and enables her to live the fullest life possible in the ultimate paradise. And we don't have to look far to see this tactic being used in our world today, do we? Many think that when they think of these people who are out there, they're following Jesus, they think, oh my gosh, it's just about a bunch of rules and restrictions about believing that anything that is going to bring me pleasure in life, well, that's evil. That's what following Jesus is all about, when the opposite is true. It's been twisted. Jesus said he came to free the captives. He said he came to bring sight to the blind. He said, I came that you might have life, abundant life. Truth has been distorted. How about this? It's now widely accepted that we should base our identity not on concrete realities, such as our physical anatomy or our genetic code, what's written in our DNA. Don't don't base your identity in that. But how do you feel? What are, what, are, what are the impressions you get as other people rub, rub up against you? Does that make you feel this way or does that make you feel that way? And our society is saying, Take, don't, don't listen to the concrete things that are here that we can see and observe and touch, which is really opposite thinking because we're so in, in fascinated with science. They say, no, 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 take that, push that aside, and think about, go inside, go internal, and, and that is who you need to be. And now, go make concrete decisions, life-altering decisions, surgical procedures based on that. It's mind-boggling. Truth has been distorted. What happened to logic? What happened to reason? What happened to doing things scientifically? Well, here's another one. The observations that are <laughs> observations that have been made about our universe, its complexity, the astronomical level of fine-tuning that has to be there for life to exist. The intelligent design that's clearly necessary to explain the origin of of the information inside each cell and the DNA that's there, a genetic coding, not to mention realities of just basic scientific laws like the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. All things tend to slow down. They tend toward disorder, lose their energy. All of that clearly points to the fact, the reality, that there must be some type of intelligent, powerful, intentional designer who's responsible for the origin of the universe. But distortions of the truth have led people to believe that these realities, they can't be evidence for God. 
Instead, the much saner thing to do is to believe that everything is just here by random chance. It's opposite thinking. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. But the reality is the enemy is a crafty one. He's a crafty one. He knows the art of subtlety. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's just an innocent question, right? Whatever it was, it was enough to sow seeds of doubt. I think that's exactly the reason that Peter tells us, be sober, be vigilant, be on your guard. You've got to be, because he's sneaky. He's going to try to slip one in there and twist your thinking just a little bit. He's going to get you to buy into that little bit of distorted truth. Well, that is going to have a tremendous impact on your life. He slips into your homes. He slips into the, the palms of our hands now with the most subtle of schemes. So easy to be lured in. Notice Eve's response. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Eve doesn't seem to notice that anything fishy is going on here. She knows that what the, what the devil said wasn't quite right, um, but she kind of takes the bait. And she even proceeds to distort the truth herself. She could have just set him straight right away and said, no, 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 you're wrong. Get with the program. Do you have eyes? Look around you. God has done this. Hey, were you not here? Were you not listening? The Lord God's given us every tree of the garden. He is so good. Do you even understand? Instead, she omits the word every. She omits it and says, yeah. God said we can eat of these trees. He said, he said we can eat. It, it, the emphasis on get God's generosity, it's set aside. It's not there anymore. She downplays it. And I think that's evidence that something is beginning to go on inside of her heart. Maybe, maybe the Creator has not been as good as we thought He was. She omits. Secondly, she adds to what God has said. She makes God's command sound extreme and unreasonable by saying that God says, neither shall you touch it. You, sh you shouldn't eat it, but neither shall you touch it. Where did that come from? We don't see that anywhere in Genesis 2. So, so if I just happen to be walking by and an arm grazes the tree, I'm just going to drop dead right there? What happens if I accidentally step on a piece of fallen fruit? Am I going to die then? This just seems completely unreasonable. It sounds a little harsh. It makes God seem a little ridiculous. Well, if the command God has given is unreasonable or extreme, well then, you don't really expect me to follow this thing to the letter, do you? Because this is, this is a little ridiculous. Dad told me to be quiet. He said, don't say a word, don't move, don't even breathe. <laughs> Come on. You don't really expect me to actually obey every single point there, do you? If I don't breathe, I'll die. Isn't it amazing, though? how our minds can begin to rationalize things. 
will twist the truth to make it seem like the one who's telling it to us, telling us what to do, they're a little crazy. Yeah, God told us this, but some doesn't. He, he said we can't even touch it or we'll die. She, she omits. She adds. Finally, she softens. Eve claims that God says, lest you die. But the reality is the command that God gave was, you will surely die. He made it very clear. There, have no doubt this is going to be the result no room for doubt here. But Eve, she just talks as if death, well, it could be. It lest you die. It could happen. Do you see what's happening? So easy. For a few subtle revisions to God's word, and then all of a sudden, God doesn't look as good as you once thought him to be. His commands, they seem a little bit restrictive, and we begin to doubt what he actually meant by what he said. That's why knowing God's word, and knowing his truth, and then communicating it accurately, that is so important. These are really small details here. And it made a tremendous difference. In Hosea 4, 6, God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's because when you distort the truth, it ain't truth anymore. You distort the truth, it immediately becomes a lie. A lie. And both the serpent and Eve, they were playing fast and loose with what God had said, and it led on a trajectory toward destruction. One commentator writes, Eve should have recoiled in horror and run screaming a buff streak through the garden to Adam. And Adam should have stepped forth to uphold the good word of God. But Eve was buying it. She remained entranced before the serpent, flushed with excitement. Anticipation consumed her. The serpent wasn't finished. Create distance. Distort the truth. Next, he leads Eve to question God's intentions. Tactic three, question intentions. He says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here he's blatantly contradicting what God said. Here's a beast of the field, a created being, a serpent nonetheless. A serpent, really? You're contradicting God? And he commits a bold-faced, blatant lie here. He's essentially saying, Hey, Hey, who are you going to believe? <laughs> that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God who created everything out of nothing and gave you all this stuff? Or me? Come on, forget about it. The enemy knows no shame. And then he has the gall to suggest that his cr the creator of all things is somehow threatened by these tiny beings he created. i got to tell you something. God doesn't want what's best for you. He knows if you eat this fruit, you're going to become just like him. And he don't like that. That doesn't even make sense. 
God wanted these people to be like him. That's why he made them in his image. He's not intimidated by them. And neither does he want to prevent them from experiencing any good thing. God has great intentions here. God just gave you everything that you could possibly want. You've got good food. You've got good health. You've got a perfectly designed, flawless spouse. You're living in a literal paradise. And not only that, God has given you a purpose. He's given you a role. He's given you authority, dominion over everything else that has been created. It's difficult to fathom how it would even be possible to question that God has anything other than the best intentions for these people. And yet that's exactly what's happening here. The serpent suggests that God is withholding more. There's a better good. There's another level of existence that will be so much more fulfilling. Don't be satisfied with all of this. You deserve more. A fourth tactic, promising more. It's amazing how the promise of more can be so alluring, isn't it? We see it in marketing all the time. Get faster internet speeds. Get more luxury for the price of standard. Get more food for one low, low price. Download that free app on your phone, and what happens? You're, you're enjoying it, you're using it, oh, this thing's pretty cool, and all of a sudden, pop up. You could have more. What about this one or that one? Click here. It's so easy. It's so simple. Or... We buy a shirt online, and what do we find in our inbox? But an ad for more. The quest for more it is never-ending. And we see it at every stage of life. You look up at your big sister, and she gets to stay up a whole half hour later than you, and you wonder why you don't have more. Your parents are paying for all of your schooling, books, housing, all of that stuff. It's incredible, but... They're not going to flip the bill for you to go on that, that spring break trip to Cancun with your friends? What's up with that? Maybe you look at your spouse 10, 15, 20 years into your marriage and you start wondering, I wonder, I wonder if I could have more. Maybe you reach midlife and you look at your family, your job, your possessions. You begin to think, I really thought I would have more. Or maybe you come near to the end and you find yourself just feeling bitter and jaded because you wish you would have experienced more or at least have more time so that you could have more. The serpent created distance. He distorted the truth. He led Eve to question God's good intentions and finally he dangles that big, juicy carrot out there. You know you could have more. Eve had been given everything, yet the allure of more reeled her right in. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, excuse me, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
She does the very thing that he wanted her to do. Elevate, evaluate the good and evil on her own. It says she saw that the tree was good. You know, up until now, the one seeing and evaluating things, it was God, wasn't it? We've seen that all over the place in chapter 1. He made this, and he saw it was good. He did that, he saw it was good. And here, all of a sudden, she sees. She sees. She evaluates. She's the one determining whether or not this is good. And what she sees tells her that, she, that this is good. Not only does she take that right upon herself to consider the fruit to be good, she embraces the lie here. She exchanges what is true in God's word, which was stated clearly, this is going to bring death. And she dared to dream it would actually cause her to soar to new levels of wisdom. And notice how seemingly simple the act is stated here. It's so simple, so insignificant, so undramatic. She took of its fruit and ate. Well, of course she did. It's only natural. It's only human. She had a hand for picking, a mouth for eating, perfectly normal desire for food. It's basic survival instinct, isn't it? What's really the big deal? She was just curious. She took one little bite. Is that really such a crime? But what may have seemed innocent or natural or insignificant, it would be the the thing that would transform the good life into a living death. She didn't know all the gruesome details of what would follow. The broken homes, the senseless violence, the crimes against humanity, personal anguish, loneliness, physical suffering, lack of satisfaction, the rift that would exist between her and her creator now, or the anger that would be kindled inside of him, that holy wrath that we hear about. All she knew that was eating the fruit, God said it would bring death. But choosing to believe a lie, she ate it anyway. And where was Adam in all this? We can't uh, ignore him. He was standing right there. It says he was with her. doesn't say anything about him being deceived. He was with her. He was standing. He was observing absolute passivity. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, this is very interesting. Talking snake. Hmm. My wife is having a conversation. Oh, he's telling her she should eat the fruit. I know I shouldn't eat the fruit, but that's me. You know, and I make my own decisions. I make my own choices. You know, her, she wants to try it. I'll see what happens here. Did God really mean what he said? Well, let's take a look. What does that say about his love for Eve, his care for her? He's passive. He just lets it happen. And when she doesn't immediately fall lifeless to the ground, he says, oh, okay, I'll have some too. The most devastating moment in human history was the one where humanity ate the fruit of the tree that would bring death. In an instant, the good life that God had created had become a living death because they exchanged truth for a lie. They listened to the enemy. They succumbed to his tactics. They ate forbidden fruit. 
And just like God told them, it did bring death. And we are witnesses of that. We have seen it. And it is tragic. Suffering that is going on in our world, even to this day, is horrific. And maybe you're experiencing it. Maybe you have seen the devastating effects of sin strike right at home. It's heart-rendering. Devastating. The tree brought death. But the good news is that there would come another tree. Another tree. Yeah, the tree would be dead. It would actually be an instrument of death. But the fruit that would be nailed up on this thing, that would be crucified on this tree, the one known as the way, the truth, and the life, from that tree, we can have life. Amen? We can eat of it and be brought from a living death to eternal life. And that's what we celebrate this morning as we come to the communion table. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. Close your eyes. Those serving communion, would you come on forward?